0: So I have a surprise for you. Uh Uh-oh. Listen. It's a little further in. I didn't start it at the Uh beginning this time. And I think this has a kind of, it's almost like a Middle Eastern kind of vibe to it, you know, like I'm envisioning like a desert at night.
1: this track
0: how long is it yeah the whole thing is uh about eight and a half minutes <laughs> it's just Beautiful. all right hey welcome to uh our podcast it's kate and vin uh i'm not kate she's kate obviously and i'm vin vin Skelza and we're here together in studio v yay
1: yay
0: uh, thank you so much for coming uh, out to New Jersey. You're welcome. For this uh number what 13 maybe? Maybe 13, I think. Yeah. I think it's the 13th podcast. I can check. Mm.
1: Guess we should know these things. Yeah.
0: And it's uh it's good to have you here in Studio V, even though Studio V is uh in a state of um mild to significant disrepair
1: it's kind of falling into decay
0: yeah from mis mis not misuse but from non-use i yeah. guess uh but it it still works a lot better than than uh relying on you know telephone technology and and uh Skype yeah. technology and all that. So it
1: still looks good. it's yeah, good that, in here. Well, thank you. These it's, microphones look impressive. Yeah,
0: and it's got that, the, the vibe. You know, the feeling. It's the, the smell. When, when uh, uh, Rita Houston would come out here, she would always immediately um, talk about the smell. Of Studio V, that it smelled like a radio station. She could smell the vinyl, <laughs> though, because I have all these records yeah, in here. It should know? be a
1: spray or something. You could,
0: yeah, take radio, care of that with radio it. studio <laughs> spray. Oh, you mean to create the smell or to get rid of I it? I don't know what I mean. Uh, Either okay. way. So, how you been? Good. Good. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking that um, I wanted there. There were some more things that I wanted to say about. PLJ.
1: Yeah, I think we should go back to PLJ.
0: Cause, um, you know, I I just like I told that the Zachary story and and uh, but I don't think I really gave like a full kind of um historical take on what it was like in 1971 to be on a commercial New York radio yeah. station. You
1: well, Well, we got some nice. Uh, Facebook and email notes about that episode and other people remembering Zachary and remembering that time.
0: For me, it was my first experience after after doing uh, college radio at at FMU, which wasn't really college radio. It was we turned it into something else and then doing some some uh, member supported public radio like at WBAI in uh, in New York. Um. Finally, now I'm at ABC FM WABC FM in 1971. I mean, it was well. It was actually, I guess, late it was late 1970 when I started there. Yeah. Um, and it's the real world of broadcasting. Right. But it's such a totally different world from the world we know now, in 2016, that. It seems like ancient history, and at times it seems like a dream. <laughs> you know, uh, there were only th- three networks. There was ABC, there was NBC, and there was CBS. And, you know, there was like uh, uh, NPR, sort of, but it wasn't, it, well, there wasn't NPR. It was television. It was NET, I guess. It was, that was Channel 13. Yeah. You know. Um and there were there were there was a half hour of national news yeah. on the air on those three networks and every day. And you know, and of course there'd be like special shows, you know, an hour long documentary or whatever, but there was very little news. There was very little anything. It was a it was a primitive time compared to the technology and the access we have now where everybody is a reporter and everybody's a critic and everybody's a creator. I mean, how many podcasts Mm -hmm. are there now? Mm -hmm. There's millions of them, millions of them. And uh, everybody has access to everything. And I think, yeah, it's going to drive you crazy. But I guess at least I have the... uh, the ability to recollect a simpler time. Yeah. But that simpler time, I think, it is, it's in danger of fading away. And I don't want it to fade away. I mean, I think I think it's important for everybody always to know their history. You know, I mean, because what's that, that line about if you don't know history, you're condemned to repeat it. Um, you have to understand what came before. And all too often, Because there's so much, as a young person now, there's so much for young people to know that exponentially there's so much that they can't know, that they don't know, that they won't know. Right. Unless somebody takes the time to tell them. Right. So here I am to tell you about being on WABC-FM.
1: Yes, you have more stories for us. We started last time.
0: We we started last time, and I kind of told you that. Zachary's story, because I think that was a very funny and very kind of um, visual story. But to be a young guy, I was, you know, 22, something like that, Um, newly married. I had had a, a very brief career of about six weeks teaching. And then to all of a sudden receive a phone call. As I told you in the past, from Larry Urden, who had been hired by ABC FM Radio to be a, a consultant, to he was um, it was his job to turn them on to really interesting radio people, young, let's for lack of a better word, call them hippies, young hippie radio guys who, like me, got their start in '67, '68. Uh, On these little radio stations, listener sponsored or college or freaky little FM stations around the country to um, bring them into, quote, the big time. And it was um, an extraordinary leap for 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 a guy like me, like all of a sudden I'm not only working in New York, but I'm working in one of the famed buildings In broadcasting in New York, the ABC building, you know, a couple of blocks away from from uh, Black Rock, which was the CBS building, which was called the Black Rock or something like it, because it was actually the stone was black on the CBS building. And that's why they called it the Black Rock. And there was uh, um, that weird musician street guy out on the street all the time, uh, Moondog. You know the composer, mm-hmm. uh, and there were these um, there were these famous street characters in New York who w- wore purple and rode um, a double bicycle, a tandem bicycle, all around Midtown Manhattan. They wore these very like weird, freaky, sort of like circus purple clothes, man and woman. <laughs> you know, and these were like significant. Um, aspects of New York culture at the time. And I was right there in the middle of it, like looking around going, you know, like wanting to toss my my hat in the air like Mary Tyler Moore, which was right around the same time. So to be at ABC FM, which became PLJ uh, in another right. year and a half or two years, they changed the call letters. And I think we talked about why. Yeah, um, Meant being... On the elevator with people like Howard Cosell, the pompous sports and, and news guy, and Howard K. Smith, who was the anchor guy. He was like the Walter Cronkite of uh, of ABC television news. Walter Cronkite was the Walter Cronkite of CBS television news. And um, there was this duo, Huntley and Brinkley, Chet Huntley and David Brinkley were the guys who were NBC news, right? And those those handful of guys, those four guys, were like the way America got its news. Which was why when when Cronkite finally began to report questioning the Vietnam War throughout the seventies, it had such an impact on you know, normally middle-of-the-road conservative-type people because they looked up to this guy. These guys were these older people who had been through World War II and, and had gained a kind of a status in society, which we don't have anymore. There's nobody right now who can get up in front of a television audience and say... Are you kidding about Donald Trump, for instance? I mean, there's lots of people saying, "Are you kidding about him?"
1: Well, they can, but they don't have that kind of audience. They don't have. The, I mean, yeah. The, uh, my favorite person to watch right now is Samantha Bee. Her show oh, is the funniest. Right. But you know, Samantha Bee and The Daily Show and these you know bastions of liberalism, but they're they're. Preaching to the choir, which I appreciate Mm -hmm. as the choir.
0: But there's nobody who has that kind of general respect of the nation. Yeah, I mean, it's just
1: the segmented, right? um, There's so many shows and the audience is so personalized and segmented for everything. Which leaves room for more diverse voices, right? (laughs) And more diverse kinds of shows because Mm. when you have thousands of channels and online you can have a Samantha B speaking to that really specific audience. Yeah.
0: And I don't know if I'm, if what I'm saying is it's better or worse than. Right. I'm, it's well, it just, just means, different. Yeah, there yeah. isn't
1: something that can have that level of influence. Yeah.
0: I mean, like when you, uh, when you see in a movie, um, and it's been in lots of fictional movies, uh, the day that, that, John F. K. was was shot and killed, Kennedy. Yeah. Um. And they they'll re, show, the thing of um Cronkite, you know, taking off his glasses and yeah. and brushing a tear away, and that that's real. That really happened in real live time, and it was amazing the effect that that had on the country as a whole, yeah. because everybody was watching it.
1: Yeah. You know? I that's... never was watching him. Him. One yeah. version of it. Yeah. yeah.
0: And 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 uh it still has the power to move people now, although I don't think it's got the impact.
1: Well, and... but that's how you felt also, um, not to speak for you, but I feel like when you talk about especially and also not to move ahead in our story, but being on NEW, that there was a sense during the age of when NEW was really big in like the 80s that um, everyone was listening, everyone at least of a certain community, that was the station. Mm-hmm. And like when you talk about like the night that um, Lennon was shot, there was, everyone knew turn on NEW, like that's that was the meeting place to go to. And that does get lost as you get more and more segmented media. There become more meeting places and more different kinds of meeting places but but everything separate and Mm. everything and it becomes harder i I think to come together but but when you have only one unified voice there's so much that doesn't get said Mm -hmm. right especially if the one unified voice is is a you know buttoned up straight white guy that's not not you but um (laughs) you know those other those news guys that that's not a perspective, like Samantha B is going to have a different perspective.
0: Sure. Right.
1: But right. it's, I don't know, because it can only get more fragmented. It's not like things are going to get more unified.
0: I don't see how that will happen.
1: It <laughs> more um, fragmented I'm, than yeah, it already is. But
0: it, it does seem like that's going to be the case. Because there's
1: more, as there's more people, and as there's more um, time to, uh, for people to examine... What they, how they identify and what is important to them. I don't know. I want to hear about the about the um the trip to go visit the guys upstate. Oh, because they were bringing you on. So just to go back to what we were talking about last week, when um Larry brought you guys, how many of you was he bringing on when he brought you on?
0: Well, in in New York, there were you know, a handful of us. But there were seven or eight, as I've explained in the past, O&Os, owned and operated stations that ABC had around the country. And in each one of those markets, he was turning people on because he was like this Pied Piper, you know, Johnny Appleseed kind of guy who went all around the country and seemed to know every significant person on underground radio back then. But in the New York area, you know, there were, maybe a dozen people.
1: And like, then whose idea was it that you needed to go get we, some training? So
0: one of the very first things that we did after I joined was um, Alan Shaw, who was the vice president or, or the... I forget what his title was, but he was the head of all those FM radio stations. He uh, arranged for a bus trip. Now, this is so like Ken Kesey, Mary Prankster's... You know Trippy hippie a bus trip from Manhattan all the way upstate to the Canadian border at the origins of the Hudson River, where the Hudson River is like a little mud stream, it's where it starts this trip to a place called z b s which was a a media community group of techno freaks and artists and poets and uh commercial designers and zbs stood for zero bullshit <laughs> and and these people were like these very left wing media centered academic types right and he felt that we would all learn something from them.
1: Was it who whose idea was it?
0: Alan Shaw, the the very straight president or vice president of uh, the FM station.
1: Do you think that that was his own romantic idea about a Ken Kesey style uh, bus trip, or he, do you nah, think
0: <laughs> he probably learned about it? It was probably Jurgen who told him about it. Okay. And but he's the one who who you know, gave the go ahead and was on the bus with us, so it was it was all the DJs and um, and uh, some office people and our significant others were invited. So your mom was on the bus with me, and um, the guy that I immediately worked for, who was like the operations manager of the station, a guy named Russ King. Mommy and I bound, uh, bonded um, with Russ and his wife. On that trip, we we left early in the morning. We took, you know, six or seven hours to drive up the New York State Thruway. Uh, We got there. We spent the day and then we turned around and came home that night. I mean, we didn't even like stay overnight or anything. There was no talk of that. And we bonded on this bus trip. Yeah, and it was like just it wasn't a Ken Kesey Merry Pranksters decorated bus. It was just a normal, you know, bus that you could rent, uh, like a large urban bus. Um, but we got up there, and 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 everybody was like, you know, smoking pot, and it was like being in the middle of um, uh, um, uh, the Magical Mystery Tour of the Beatles. You know, you went
1: like, to their station.
0: It wasn't a station. It was a it was a house you know it was like an old house and some other r- r- ramshackle buildings and they had a lot of equipment and they made things they made like documentary movies and uh, they and they made radio commercials and public service announcements okay and,
1: they were like producers yeah
0: they were producers but they were so much more than that they were and it was like a communal kind of thing and and that was our. That was like my introduction. I was like, whoa, this is what it's going to be like to work for the big time." Just to take you know, psychedelic bus trips up to uh, the uh, the origins of the Hudson River, which I swear to God is in was right in their front yard. It was this little like mud <laughs> puddle, and that—that's <laughs> where it starts. <laughs> you, you know what I? You know what I love to do. This is an addendum that has nothing to do with radio or anything else. I love to go on. Google Maps, yeah, and get the satellite view right, and find a, f- a famous river like I. The, I most recently did it with the the Thames uh-huh. in, in England, and I start out like someplace where I know. So I was like the Thames right under the the London Bridge. I follow it all the way up through the country as it meanders around and turns and twists and f- until eventually I find where it starts. And it's amazing to do that. And I've done that with so many of the world's great rivers. I've done it with the <laughs> Nile. I've done it with the Mississippi.
1: But no I've one say with... that you're wasting your retirement. No, I... You're really...
0: I. This
1: is educational.
0: Don't you think?
1: That's a cool idea.
0: And, and you see, like, all the different areas that a river goes through, like, yeah. you know, those big, long rivers. And I thought, like, the Thames was just sort of a London-based river, but it's not. The Thames is throughout all of of Britain. It's amazing. So anyhow, we went on this <laughs> this this trip and the thing that, that I was supposed to get out of it, the ZBS thing, was that this guy Russ King, who was my immediate superior, yeah, he was gonna teach me how to make commercials. And what we were going to learn from ZBS was how to bring a very hip, countercultural, left-of-center mindset to that.
1: To something commercial. So,
0: yeah, to commercial things. So what that translated into back home in New York now was um, uh, me learning how to make commercials for things like uh, sex toy shops. And uh, uh, hippie haircutting, you know, spas and stuff. Hippie, was, what is a hippie haircutting <laughs> spa? Yeah, you know, it was like you know, just like you know, alternative, yeah, lifestyle salons, sure. And I don't think that's really what ZBS had in mind, you know, that, that that would be the content, but that was who they were selling time to local time because, see, the idea was all right you turned over your your valuable fm signal to this alternative music that appealed to a very large audience who you could now find sponsors who would appeal to that audience and vice versa you know so they would look at our audience and they would figure out what these kids liked and what they did okay and to a large extent they went to Things like clubs, Mm -hmm. restaurants, movie theaters. That's
1: interesting because it does seem smart that if you're going to change your format and you're going to be courting these new listeners and this youth market, right, that make sure you have advertisers that fit that. Otherwise, it's not going to work out. Right.
0: Well, the problem was that, that the local advertisers fit it Perfectly. I mean we had great fun doing commercials for I can't think of the name of the shop now, but the the Pink Pussycat or something. Sure. It was a shop down in the village yeah, yeah, yeah. that was like i I think it's still there. Probably. Uh you know, great fun thinking up wise ass commercials for this sex shop. Uh but that wasn't enough to support a big New York City FM radio station. You couldn't charge those people what you would get for a national sponsor like a cigarette company or a car. Well, maybe we didn't have cigarettes then. I think they were outlawed in in advertising by then. But um, what does my madman tell me? Yeah, it was was much earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, But cars, right? you know, and beer and stuff like that. Um, And that's sort of partly where things got into trouble was as you paid less attention as the salespeople paid less attention to the little individual mom-and-pop stores, the little leather shop, you know, the little um, instrument shop down in the village, the small mom-and-pop places. And they began to see bigger dollar signs hanging over these national buys from big uh, advertising agencies representing these big corporations. Suddenly you began to lose some of that sense of, well, we're all in it together, and even the sponsors are in it together. The sponsors are just like you. Right. You know? It was all a matter of economics, really. But the ZBS trip was great. That's where I bonded with Dave Herman for the for the. The first time, and yeah. we wound up becoming good friends. I guess I'm not sure if Jane, his first wife, was on that trip or not. But we became good friends with them, and we wound up getting a um, a kitten from them, Herman Graypaws. Oh, Herman right? which, Graypaws! Which you, you've seen pictures of Herman sure. Graypaws. Um, great little, <laughs> great little kitty cat.
1: So you were you were cutting tape and making these commercials.
0: Well, I had never really worked with tape before yeah. other than to just record something that I was doing, you know, like to record a soundtrack or like yeah. the way I'm recording this now. This was making 30-second or 60-second commercials where I had to learn like a whole new language, like I guys would come in, engineers would come in and say they you know, they would grab a bunch of um, uh, um, cartridges, tape cartridges that had commercials on them. They were larger than cassettes, but they were these plastic things that went into machines that looked sort of like, like this. Yeah. You know, like a, like a, like a CD player. Mm-hmm. Um, and each one would have a bunch of commercials on it for the same company. Uh and they would, you know, some guy, some engineer would walk in and he'd grab like 10 of them and he'd say, where are you going with those? And and he'd say, I'm going out to burn them. And I'd go, burn them? What do you, what do you mean burn them? And it turned out that that meant it, they took the tape and they actually ran it over um, like a hot plate, an electronic producing currency thing that effectively wiped the tapes clean mm-hmm. so that they could be reused and the vocabulary was that you burnt you burned the tape you cleaned it you erased it
1: how is that possible I don't know because then sometimes you have to bake the tapes to make them better
0: yeah um it's not it's not the same baking a tape an old tape is actually baking it it's actually there's actually heat involved, right? Oh, burning a tape is an electronic oh. thing where you're you're Wipe. actually like wiping, wiping it, clean. it clean. Yeah. Okay. You're 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 Doesn't demagnetizing. Doesn't involve actual heat. No, I hear you. No, no, no. Um, except that electricity ultimately is heat, but it's a different kind of heat, right. I guess. But I had never cut. I had never spliced yeah. tape before, and I learned. A combination of this guy, Russ King, and uh, a wonderful young engineer whose first name was Peter, and another guy named George. I can't remember their last names, but there were a couple of young engineers. Oh, let me tell you about the engineers. Yeah. Uh, But I learned how to to edit and splice and cut tape, which we still do, even with computers, you know, the way we the way we'll find a spot and we'll want to get rid of the next sentence, so we'll highlight it, you know, and hit delete and get rid of it and then, you know, you'll mark it well, this all used to be done by hand with with wax pencils, you'd mark the tape where you wanted to cut it and then you'd take it out of the machine and you'd put it on this this um, uh, metal device Take a razor blade, literally a razor blade. Cut. They used to. That's how they. That's how they edited film.
1: Yeah, back in I the remember day. you showing me one day at K Rock in the nineties. You you showed me how to how to cut.
0: Yeah, because they, they were still cutting. They, they were still doing things. It's
1: very cool. Yeah, it's so nice. It's such an interesting thing to make sound so visual and tangible in that way. Yeah.
0: But it's it, but it's not the same as visible like right now the way we're recording into an audio program that we can see the wave file right. But it's a different kind of thing. You yeah, know? it's, it's like, very cool. And it's uh, you learn your ears learn. A lot more because you don't have the sight of the wave sure. to help you cut it. Yeah, so you're constantly like going, turning like, the you're turning the, the, the two that. reels, you know, to get right. <laughs> <That's> so cool. <laughs> All right. to get right to the beginning of the sound that you want to. So I learned that, and that was uh, I learned it on the on the job, which yeah, was, which was fun. But the engineers, here was the thing about about being the young hippie guys on this big commercial radio station. Back then, the engineers were unionized. I believe their union was NABET. I forget, broadcast and electrical engineers, technician, I forget what it stood for. Yeah. But these guys had been unionized since the early days of radio. And part of their unionization Made it impossible for anybody to touch any kind of equipment. You had to have an engineer do it for you. And you
1: weren't called I wasn't, an engineer. I
0: wasn't an engineer. I was talent,
1: even I, though you were editing spots.
0: They they finally began to make um exceptions for that. You could you could. Well, no, now that I think about it, no, I wasn't even allowed to do that. I always had to have an engineer do it for me. Mm -hmm. I would sit in a room with that guy Peter or that Mm -hmm. guy George, and we would do it together. Now, they eventually would let me actually touch it because they were young guys. They were not that different from the rest of us. But some of the older guys who had been engineers on WABC AM, for many years, they were the guys who engineered Cousin Brucey and Dan Ingram and, and all those people. Those guys were like real strict old school guys. You didn't touch anything. So you walked into a studio and the studio was literally separated. The engineers were on one side of the room and the engineering board, this board here, was on one side of the room. There wasn't glass they had taken the glass down by that time, but the talent, quote unquote, was on the other side of the room. And we would have to hand the record to the engineer What? and say, Cue up track six, and the engineer would put it down on the turntable and he would cue up track six and you go, No, no, give it cue it up like a half track further behind that, you know. And then it would come time for the segue, and you'd go, um, Jerry Jerry and Jerry was sitting back reading the Daily News, (laughs) right, Uh, getting ready to have his lunch, not paying any attention to this hippie music, which they all hated, which was not the same as the the great pop music that the AM guys were playing on the other side of the hall there, where WABC AM was. You go, Jerry, 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 now! segue now and he go oh he put his paper down and you know for every song for every song for every everything
1: when did that end
0: uh it was still in effect when i left there and that was in you know 72 um it didn't end until years you know, a couple of years later. Because I it was guess. a union thing. Yeah, it was a union thing. Mm-hmm. Now when I was at when I got to NEW in seventy three, the union there was either not as strict or they had already done away with and renegotiated things so that the engineers did one thing but you as a DJ were allowed to be your own engineer. It was called comboing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was where most people from my generation, um, were combo, combo DJs. They, they engineered their own shows. They started their own records going and they turned the microphone on and they played the commercials. They actually touched things, but there was this one guy in particular, his name was his name was Jerry. He'd come into the, the studio, and they only worked in the studio for, like, 45 minutes. And then, because their, their union contract called for them to have, like, a 10-minute break every hour, you know. So they would they would leave, and they would go to their break room, and then they would not necessarily come back to you. They would go to the next studio where they were scheduled to work which was over on the AM side or in the newsroom or in one of the production rooms, they would move around all day. They wouldn't just be part. You wouldn't have the same engineer. Right. The only guys who had the same engineer were like, like the top AM guys, uh, Ingram and Brucey. Mm-hmm. There was like one engineer who was Bruce Morrow's engineer. Nobody else worked with Bruce except this guy. Right. You know, But that was the exception to the rule we um we were at the mercy of these guys, and Jerry would come in, he would put on a visor like he was getting ready to like play poker or something, you know, <laughs> and uh take out his daily news or a paperback book and and would totally ignore us, yeah, it took him a long time it took us all a long time to get over the us versus them aspect of this. They looked at us as being unprofessional, mm-hmm. uh, talentless. The music that we were playing was garbage. Well, because
1: they had been there through this transition of now we're going to be bringing in these like yeah. counterculture yeah. hippie kids.
0: And they had all worked for for ABC AM, right. which was like the top, top 40 station in the country. You know, it was really the big time. And suddenly now they were working with us, no, no, nothings. And, you know, gradually we began to build up a a, a rapport and we got to see each other as human beings. And by the time I left there, I was friends with all those guys. And for the most part, they were friends with us. But there were one or two DJs who never, never learned to work with the engineers. And there was there would literally be like a, a hatred, a tension. In the room, which how can you do a good radio show when you're right. when you're like so angry with the other person in the room with you on the other side of the desk?
1: Well, later on, you would get you had producers, you had producer Kara and yeah, but producer Kim. Yeah, that was they weren't engineers, but later on, you you would intentionally have someone in the room with you that was a supportive yes, force,
0: a supportive force exactly, and that really the the start of all that was with, um, or what made that popular was with Howard Stern.
1: Mm -hmm. You know,
0: when Stern came along and had that crew in the room and had Gary Dellabody was his producer, you know, it was, uh, um, suddenly everybody wanted a producer. So all the music jocks wanted producers, you know, and we had very little need for them. I mean, it was a totally different ball game uh, a morning talk show versus a, an afternoon or late night music show you didn't really need anybody in the room with you but it got to be um an important part of of how we did radio
1: it gets lonely yeah well it does yeah, yeah.
0: you know but uh but i think the fact that i learned how to do radio as a solo person yeah in the room by myself both both in my college radio days and then in the early days of uh of uh commercial radio helped me in terms of building a rapport with the audience yeah you know cuz cause, cause it was just you alone in a room talking to tens of thousands of people it was an amazing um uh it was an amazing medium you know that had these immense possibilities for communication and for getting inside somebody's
1: right,
0: somebody's heart and soul and head. Um, so I thought that that working alone was always a good thing. It took me a long time to get used to having somebody in the room, and and so you know I'm not talking about an engineer now. I'm talking about a, like a producer person, a backup person. A, you know, an assistant, a helper, or whatever you want to call him, and I've only had a couple over the years because I'd have to really work long and hard to find a person that I wanted to be yeah. intimate with sure. in that kind of a setting. Yeah. Do you remember Johnny Nap? Yeah. Johnny Johnny Nap was at P, when I was at uh, K Rock, so that was your first awareness of me as a radio guy when you were five and six and seven years old. Johnny Knapp was my first producer, John Napolitano from Staten Island. But that was much later. That was in the mid-'80s.
1: Well, I'm wondering uh, if we should uh, end this episode here and continue with the rest of the PLJ stories in the next episode.
0: Okay, sure. But uh, am I... Am I conveying some aspect of what it was like to be at this big radio station then? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I cause, I cause I'm I'm trying. I I would like to.
1: I think you are.
0: Yeah. Is it too early to tell that you're gonna have a play produced by Elevator Repair Service?
1: It's not too early. I have two cool things that are happening around play stuff. One is I got. Um, uh, I, w- I won't say the name of it because it hasn't been announced yet, but there's a cool uh, other company in New York that supports uh, female uh, theater artists. and I have a I got a residency with them to work on a show. Oh. And then a, yeah, the theater company that I've worked for, for a long time, Elevator repair service is going to be workshopping a play that I wrote this fall.
0: That's great.
1: But we don't have a final date for the final. Uh, production yet, but okay. I'll tell people when we do.
0: Comedy? Tragedy? Combination? Comedy.
1: It's my, it's inspired by Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf?
0: Oh, by Albie's play.
1: Yeah, which, so the timing is kind yeah, of just, crazy. Right? But, um, yeah, I personally, I mean, I've been writing plays for, and, you know, performing in theater for a while now, but it's nice for me as someone who's Working full time writing at home alone to have the prospect of getting to do collaborative work ah, again,
0: yeah, um, yeah,
1: is a nice a uh, thing to look forward to. Well,
0: it's it's a it's a good combination of different kinds of writing. Yeah, you know, one alone would be the... tend to drive you crazy, and yeah. and to to be able to get away from the group to write your novel. Yeah, that's cool. And then when you're crazy being in the room alone with the cat and the novel, you can go to the group and work there.
1: It's yeah, it needs a balance.
0: Now, are you are you going to be acting in Washington next year? Uh huh.
1: In at the Shakespeare Theater in D.C. in uh, February and March, we're doing the Select.
0: Which is the play that's based on Hemingway's
1: "The Sun Also Rises."
0: Uh, section of "The Sun Also Rises." Yeah, I'm yeah. going to be in it. That's cool. Yeah. Maybe Mama and I will come to Washington. That'll be fun. You should you come there. because
1: one of the fun surprises is that uh, our director is going to be playing. Is going to be filling in one of the parts.
0: John is going to be in it. Yeah. No kidding. So it's going
1: to be a little treat, a little extra incentive for. For wow! people from up here to make the trip down to see it.
0: Okay. So uh, so we'll do this again soon.
1: Yeah, we'll continue with the more PLJ-era okay. stories.
0: Good. Thanks, Kate.
1: Thank you. Take care, babe. Right. Bye.